Miracy. It goes back to a Peter Thiel question, one of the best questions on the face of the planet. He asks this for every single person that he wants to hire. What truth do you believe that very few people agree with you on? And when you ask that question, it doesn't matter what the truth is. What he's trying to identify is if everyone says one plus one equals three, do you disagree and say it's two? Welcome. I'm Sharon Richmond, and this is To Lead is Human. For more than 30 years, I've run a business called Leading Large. I help C-level executives expand their impact, clarifying priorities, energizing their organizations, and building cultures of accountability and respect. In this podcast, we help you envision how to supercharge your leadership by introducing you to executives who lead with intention. These top business leaders exemplify the principles of leading large. They know that as leaders, the power their role affords them comes with an equal measure of responsibility. These leaders not only deliver stellar value to their customers, clients, and stakeholders of all kinds, they also prioritize building organizations that provide purpose, meaning, and a healthy environment for their employees. We learn from the challenges and successes they have experienced on their human journey. Joining me on the show today is Liam Martin. Liam is the co-founder and chief innovation officer of Time Doctor, an organization with more than 100 employees in more than 30 countries, which helps employers and employees to work remotely and efficiently. As an expert in asynchronous remote work, Liam also co-organizes Running Remote, the world's largest conference dedicated to building, scaling, and leading remote teams. In support of advocating remote work, Liam and his business partner, Rob Rawson, wrote the 2022 Wall Street Journal bestseller, Running Remote, which shares the success secrets of early remote work pioneers pre-pandemic. Although he works from anywhere, of course, Liam is now based in Montreal, Canada. Welcome to the show, Liam. Thank you for your time today to talk about your leadership journey. Sharon, thanks for the intro. Really appreciate it. The one thing that you left out is that ChatGPT just recently defined me as the third most important influencer in remote work. Well, that's even better. So isn't everybody that amazing? Super, it's wonderful. Congrats! Someone sent me that tweet. Yeah, someone <laughs> sent me that tweet, and I thought, oh, thankfully, now that an AI thinks that I'm important. Well, then you must be. Exactly. Right. Yeah. No, I'm excited to be here. Excited to be able to get into what we're talking about today, which I think is so important because we're in July of 2023. I think we're really at the climax of the push back to the office. Yeah. And I have a lot of data to be able to show what is happening and then also what's going to happen probably in the next 12 to 24 months. I think it's going to be a lot more interesting than a lot of people think. Well, that's awesome. So with remote work, being such a huge topic. Can you start by just giving us an overview of your own leadership journey in terms of the roles you've had leading others that have led you to this expertise? Sure. So as a tech entrepreneur, I've worked for myself for almost 20 years. And through that process, I've had definitely a lot of mentors from other companies that have helped me along the way. But then I've also had a lot of internal mentors as well. My perspective is that if you're hiring someone, they should generally be better at that thing that you're hiring for than you are. So a lot of those people, I look for direction on where I want to be able to go next. And I definitely don't have it right. I think that you need to figure out what you're good at and what you're bad at. Management for me, I'm not 
fantastic at. I think leadership I'm better at, and I've pushed into that over the last few years, and we can talk about the differences. Yeah, no, that would be great. And I think you're doing this leadership role at the intersection of, at least as I understand it, of these human-centered cultures, remote work, and the need for predictably solid or better organizational performance. So I'm curious, what do you think this demands of you that is different than traditional leadership? I think the biggest thing that you can take into consideration is understanding, number one, that remote work is very different from a managerial philosophy than in-office work. So when 2020 happened, for everyone that kind of doesn't really understand the context, February of 2020, 4% of the U.S. workforce was working remotely. By March, that was 45% of the U.S. workforce. That is the biggest shift in work since the Industrial Revolution. But the Industrial Revolution took 80 years and we did that in March. So everything changed with regards to politics, to the way that we interact with each other, economics. And we're still feeling those ripple effects. And the biggest problem that I actually think everyone had during that transition was it wasn't a transition to remote work. It was a transition to work from home, which is a little bit different, at least for people that I worked with before the pandemic that were remote work proponents. Remote work is hybrid. You can work from a co-working space. You could go into the office one or two days a week. You can be location independent. There's a whole bunch of different ways of working remotely, but work from home is I'm stuck in my house because there's a virus that may or may not kill me when I go outside and interact with people. And so the biggest methodological shift that I think people need to understand is that managing people when they work remotely is entirely different from inside of an office. And no one really got that memo. That's one of the major reasons why we wrote this book, Running Remote, specifically to be able to outline those differences and the methodologies that connect to that. So just in your own role of managing your own company, what do you think you do differently in terms of how you manage than, let's say, a more traditional tech company might be doing if they only came across remote work during the pandemic and they're trying to figure it out now? So what do you do differently? So one of the things in the book that we did research for was how long people spend on video calls per week in a recently remote company. The average amount of time was 56% of someone's work week was spent on video conferencing. In our company and most other companies that are generally successful in remote work, they spend less than 20% of their time on video calls. And it really boils down into a philosophy that we call asynchronous management, which is Mm -hmm. the ability to be able to manage people without directly interacting with them synchronously. So right now we're communicating synchronously, but for the people that are listening to this podcast right now, they're consuming that information asynchronously. So the information is available for them when they want to consume it, when it's most optimal for them. And this is just a philosophy that is very difficult for a 20th century manager, MBA type person to get their head around because management is a much more active activity inside of those types of environments. Whereas inside of asynchronous organizations, management is much more passive and it focuses more on leadership, i.e. getting people excited about why they're there and focusing on the culture of the company as opposed to whether or not you hit your numbers. Well, and I think what you're really describing, at least as I'm hearing it, is it's such a major mindset shift. So for example, I can hear in my own head one of my clients today saying, but how do you build culture and connectedness with no in-person meetings? So I think the issue that you have inside of that is that 
culture isn't about whether or not you get a birthday cake on your birthday or whether you go out for a pizza Thursdays. That's not culture. Your culture is not your office. The culture is not the physical space. The culture of the company, if you take it to an anthropological level, it is what do we believe that others do not? Mm. That's what culture is. A lot of people throw that word around. What's the culture of the company? Can you tell me what that means? Not many people can. <laughs> they just throw it around as a buzzword. Why is it important that what we believe is different from another company? Why is that the differentiator in your mind? Because number one, it creates a very clear divisive choice for hiring. I see. Here is who we are. And this is a very small percentage of the population. And if you don't believe this, you shouldn't work here. You should go work yeah. somewhere else because we want to align people to the weird activities that we do inside of our organization that other people don't agree with. So before the pandemic, we had a very clear, at the top of our culture document, uh, we are a remote first company. Our mission is to empower the world's transition towards remote work. Mm. And so we actually had a bunch of questions, which really don't work now, unfortunately, because everyone has now been able to get a chance to work remotely. But we would purposefully ask questions that gave people the belief that we did not like remote work. And then we found out whether or not candidates would disagree. Interesting. So we would say things like, listen, I mean, working in an office is really important, isn't it? Oh, yes. Working in an office is really important. It's absolutely critical to how I do my work. Great. You're not hired. Perfect. Let's get you <laughs> off of the bus. Whereas someone who would say, imagine how many people disagree with someone in an interview. If they said instead, well, for me, I mean, I can work in an office, but to be honest with you, at least some part of my week, I really need to be able to work remotely or I need to work from home because it's really good for my productivity. You're on the bus. Fantastic. And that was maybe 10% of candidates. Yeah. So it allows us to be able to very actively choose. It goes back to a Peter Thiel question, one of the best questions on the face of the planet. He asks this for every single person that he wants to hire. What truth do you believe that very few people agree with you on? Mm. And when you ask that question, it doesn't matter what the truth is. What he's trying to identify is if everyone says one plus one equals three, do you disagree and say it's two? So what you're saying, if I were to paraphrase, is every company, and I agree with this, should be clear about the culture, how we do things, whether it's like other people or not. But you need to know what you're choosing when you choose us. And so... When I think about these kind of human-centered cultures, meaning we don't just think of workers as units of production, but we recognize these are people. Everybody in our organization is a legitimate human being with interests and goals of their own, and we should, as leaders, care about what their goals and interests are so that we can determine the best way to align our mutual goals. And if we can't or we don't, then like you said, that's just a bad fit. So with this like, do you do, for example, video one-on-one -on -one meetings or how do you guys do your one-on-ones when you want to talk about feedback or culture or career development? So one-on-ones are definitely one of those things that we do synchronous versus asynchronous. So when I think about management versus leadership, leadership is synchronous, management is asynchronous. That's all that it is. When you actually really want to boil down to what asynchronous management is, it is all of the pieces that you need to be able to run a classic office, I have a question. Our documentation can answer it. 
I need to ask a question. Our project management system is where you would ask that question. And maybe it wouldn't be your manager that answers, but maybe it would be your coworker or someone in another department. Different processes that are documented. The ability to be able to go back in time and look at a meeting that happened three years ago and figure out why a decision was made. It's all there. We have the philosophy of radical transparency inside of the organization. So we give people access to everything. And then essentially the platform is the manager. All mm-hmm. of the technology that we've built is the manager. And that opens us up to focus on leadership and collaboration. So it's more about creating human connection than necessarily whether or not you're hitting your numbers. Let's ask the harder question. When someone isn't performing well, how do you know, first of all, and how do you handle that? The way that we do it is we have quantifiable longitudinal metrics that every single employee must have inside of the company. You must have at least one. You can't have more than five. And we measure those on a daily, sometimes even hourly, but a daily, weekly basis. Usually for us, a biweekly or a monthly basis doesn't give us the cadence that we need to be able to track whether or not you're moving in the right direction or the wrong direction. And the thing that's different is the platform manages all those metrics. And actually, the funny thing is when all of these metrics are collected and they're automated, you can have a conversation about the metrics and it's not a conflict between the manager and the employee. So it's a different conversation. The employee is not saying, oh man, I got to talk to my manager about this issue. It's more, I need my work buddy to help me get to where I need to go. So in your experience out in the world, what are leaders getting really wrong about remote work right now? What's the biggest thing they're missing? Zoom calls. Got to get rid of those Zoom calls. Oh my God. And I love Zoom, right? Like they are a sponsor of Running Remote. They're a great partner of ours. But to spend 30 out of your 40 hours on Zoom calls means you spent 30 of your 40 hours preparing to do work. And now you only have 10 hours to actually do it. There's a great book called Deep Work by a man named Cal Newport. And I believe that it is every single manager's duty to try to optimize their workforce into as much deep work as humanly possible. So if you have every single worker that has everything that they need in front of them to execute on the plan, they're focused, they don't have any distractions, that's what you need to have in order to be able to have a successful and innovative company. Yeah, and I've seen uh, research that says Every interruption, it takes about 24 minutes. I think that's the right number to re-engage at the level of depth that you were before the interruption. So I can see how, though, the anxiety that it provokes in the managers, like for individual contributors, I think it makes sense what you're saying to a certain extent. Again, I'm hearing the voices of clients in my head saying, but what about when the work itself requires that we work as a team to make a decision? How do you guys handle those kinds of engagements. Well, so one other piece of information that I would add into this, which maybe won't make some of your clients incredibly happy, is asynchronous organizations have on average a 50% thinner managerial layer than their on-premise in-office counterparts because they are essentially redundant inside of that organization. And another thing that I found very interesting about asynchronous orgs is they measure their IC rate. So that is a core metric inside of their HR dashboard. What would that mean, IC rate? Individual contribution rate. So how many hours do you commit towards individual contribution versus management? And inside Ah. of those organizations, the CEO of one company, a multi-billion dollar company, 
the CEO maintained a 40% IC rate. That person was writing code 40% of their workday, multi, multi billion dollar company. So thousands and thousands of employees? 10,000 plus. 10,000 plus employees. And the CEO was yes. writing code. 40% of his day was committed towards IC and the entire executive team as well. Their perspective on this was individual contribution allows for everyone to understand the company in a tactile way and that you lose something once you become a pure manager. What's the fastest way to make more money in a company? Become a manager. What's the fastest way to lose really great people in your company? And now I'm a manager, I don't do any work. Right. It's like, well, you know, maybe we shouldn't take the best engineers that we have inside of our organization and make them managers. Maybe instead we should actually say, let's reduce the amount of management required for this company to be able to operate. One of the things that they really said that hit home for me is management is a hobby, not a sport in our company. We have no professional managers in our company. And most asynchronous organizations follow exactly the same methodology. That's a very hard pill to swallow for people that have become managers their entire lives. This is the big issue that I actually had in terms of transitioning these companies is the people that were primarily against this were the managers because they realized that it was a Model T versus horse and buggy moment Mm. where they are redundant inside of this process. So we've identified in our research that asynchronous work is very difficult to transition to But it's very easy when you start from asynchronous and you move up. So there's a next generation of companies that are operating asynchronously with a very, very thin managerial layer because it's not needed. And they have more people on the front lines of the company doing the work as opposed to managing people doing the work. And this inevitably leads to a more profitable business. So I can imagine, for example, that some of the executives, their IC work might be meeting with clients, might be reviewing product or reviewing code? Yeah. So, I mean, for me, even in my day, I would say probably my managerial versus IC work is 80-20. 20% of my day is spent on management. 80% is spent on doing things like this, as an example, which is much more valuable to the company. Number one, because I'm not as good of a manager as professional managers. And that's another part of the pie that you have to actually collect just because you were here the longest or your co-founder of the company doesn't mean that you're any good at management. You should probably just hire really good managers to do that type of work. But then the second part of it is what activities am I doing that directly correlate towards revenue? So in these asynchronous companies, are there like norms or rules about when and how to communicate? And, and what would be some good examples maybe from your company? One of the first documents that you get when you join our company is our notifications document. All notifications need to be removed. Every single one, save for one. On Slack, there's only one channel that I get a notification for, which is emergency room. So hashtag emergency room. If you post a message in that chat, it will notify everyone's computer and it will also ring my phone. At the same time, that is everyone needs to get up. You know, someone's trying to hack us, the server's down. There's a big problem that we need to be able to solve immediately. And then there's actually one for me personally, which is hashtag Liam emergency. So anyone can actually at Liam emergency 
inside of Slack, and then I would get that notification. Everything else, I have my Slack open right now. I have no notifications because we're doing this podcast. I don't check it. If I had those little notifications that were popping up all the time, it would distract me from the focus of speaking with you right now. You get that immediacy of communication with regards to Slack, but it comes at the expense of deep work, which we want to be able to optimize. It allows for managers to be able to get, or coworkers to be able to get an immediate response. So the individual moves faster at the cost of the organization moving slower. And that's the big problem that you need to fundamentally solve. It's a classic tragedy of the commons where everyone just takes a little bit of a bite out of the apple and then there's nothing left for anybody else. This is exactly how I've been thinking about it as well as the tragedy of the commons. For those of you that are not economics buffs, you can go look it up on your favorite search tool. But right. I, it is, you know, when it's, when it's easy for everyone to do and everyone does it, it has a bigger societal cost than the mm-hmm. benefit it's producing. And I can hear Absolutely. that. So I imagine a few companies listening right now are like, oh my God, I'm going to go turn off my Slack notifications right now and create mm-hmm. this emergency channel, which I kind of love this idea. So I'm going to slightly switch a little bit. When we think about remote work, of course, we're talking about remote leadership. I asked you earlier, like, what do you do differently? What do you think makes for the most successful remote leadership? And again, not necessarily management. I get the the metrics are tracked by your platform, but we've got lots of interpersonal work we need to do. So what makes the most successful remote leader? Introversion is a really important factor to take into consideration when you're thinking about just remote work, but also management. And I'll talk about it in the context of what I like to call the Captain America syndrome or bias. So if I go into an office building, there are all those like boardrooms that are all made out of glass. I don't know why it looks like an aquarium, but you know, it's like, you'll see eight or nine people in that boardroom. I do not have to listen to them to figure out whose ideas get adopted most often. It is the best person at communicating those ideas. His ideas may not be the best, but he's really good at communicating it. Whereas a wallflower like me that sits in the back of the room and I don't really want to engage, right? So asynchronous management and collaboration actually removes that charisma bias Mm -hmm. from the interaction. So now everyone's ideas are much more equal because they're being presented in a much more equal way. There is a huge study that was done by Slack, uh, FutureForum, for anyone that wants to Google it. And their latest data set has shown that minorities, particularly African-American and Latino racial groups, have a 44% and 28% respective increase in sense of belonging inside of the organization because their ideas are getting adopted more often because their race, their gender, their identity is removed from the transaction. So it allows for everyone to be able to be interacted with much more equally. And you as a manager, you need to be able to fight the urge to be sucked in by charismatic leaders. That is probably Mm. the most important thing you as a manager need to do is forget about who communicates the idea the best, focus on the content of the actual idea. And another factor which is rampant right now with hybrid is something called location bias or 
basically how close you are to an, a direct employee or coworker. So you mean physical closeness, physical closeness. So mm -hmm. for hybrid environments right now, are you agreeing more with the people that are in the office or are you agreeing more with the people that are remote? And if either of those are biased, you have a problem. <laughs> what I love most about that is it's very easy to self-monitor. You can do a little checklist for yourself as a leader and just pay mm -hmm. attention for a week and see if there's a trend. I don't, I mean, most of the leaders I know, they don't intentionally try to be biased. They try not to be. Right. And so they have to gather a little data to figure it out sometimes. But mm -hmm. you just gave me the perfect segue to the last big picture question. As you said, there's this huge push right now to return to the office and this hybrid dilemma. So what's your prediction of how this is going to shake out over the next couple of years? So as I had said before, we went from 4% to 45% of the U.S. workforce working remotely in March of 2020. And now I think we're at about, what, 24, 35, something like that? Depending upon the data set that you look at, it's between 26 and 34. So you're absolutely oh, right. Pretty darn good. 26, <laughs> pretty darn close. So 26 to 34. However, almost every data set has shown we have either plateaued or we're going back up in the opposite direction. So more people are leaving the office, even though we've got this huge push back to the office. And there's a separate issue, which is right now, office commercial real estate is uh, about $22 trillion in debt. It was 4% vacancy pre-pandemic. We're now at 22% and still going up in terms of vacancy. So we're sitting on an economic time bomb. This pushback to the office is quite interesting because I stay up to date with all of the research on remote work. And um, all the research says that remote work is a net increase towards productivity. Generally, there's 26 that have said it's a net increase. There's one that I've read that says it's a, not an increase, but it's a little bit of a biased data set. And so there's this almost conspiratorial pushback to the office. But when you identify who's really trying to push people back to the office, it's a lot of people that have a lot of BlackRock in their portfolio. And so need to be mindful of that in terms of commercial real estate and where it's going. And I think probably by this time next year, we will see remote work definitely being the scarlet letter of the economy, because I think that there is a lot of economic shift that still hasn't taken place that needs to be burst in order for us to be able to move on to the next stage. But generally, most academics will agree that we'll probably be back up to about 50% of the U.S. workforce working remotely, definitively by 2040. Across all industries? Well, not Probably not across all industries. All workers. So all work not across all, all workers. Industries. Yes. So wow. we're currently sitting at, as I said, 24 to 36%, right? So we're, that's, I'm thinking those are people retail, that primarily- I'm just, yeah. Yeah. So I'm thinking like the, retail and manufacturing, like it's some of that's really hard to picture. Most- most popular job on planet Earth. What do you think it is? Project management. Close. Um, it is customer support. Ah. It's 13% of the economy, of the U.S. economy, wow. is customer support. So those are almost entirely, we're talking like 89% are still remote. Only about 10% are in office at this point. And they were almost entirely, those numbers were completely reversed pre-pandemic. 
So they and these made are the call, transition. We're talking call centers, right? This is what we're talking. We're talking about like basically big call centers have gone rogue. Yeah. So front office call centers. So people that do phone calls, synchronous communication, and then also customer support ticket soft uh, people. So oh. people that are answering emails, chat pop-ups, all that kind of stuff. Those are also the groups that are probably the most at risk from large language models like ChatGPT. Yeah. And so we're probably going to see some compression in that industry. But I, unlike other people, I don't think that that's going to completely go away. I think no matter how good an AI is, you're going to want to get on the phone with Sharon to say like, Sharon, what's going on here? I need to actually get this problem solved. So yeah. I think that's probably going to stay a relatively large part of the economy. And 85-ish percent of that job type is remote at this point. It's really, I mean, the economic implications of what we're talking about are really profound, but, oh. but we're not going to go there right uh, now. That's as much the part as you that's want really to. exciting. I know. <laughs> but this is where I want to ask you to kind of go open the kimono and be a little vulnerable with us because sure. our listeners want to know what do leaders learn and how do they get better? So, so what is something you've learned about yourself in the past year, let's say, or the past couple of years as a leader that has changed the way you operate? step out of people's way to allow for better managers to step forward. That's probably the most important thing that I've learned is I have been doing way less management over the last year and the company has been getting way better in terms of management. And so what's the internal, like that must've been hard for you a little bit. Don't say it wasn't because people want to hear it was hard. So how did you adapt it? How did you figure it out? So someone gave me a really good piece of advice, which was, do you want to run a company or own one? And I said, I want to own one. And then he said, so then get out of everyone's way and mm -hmm. focus on owning it as opposed to running it. And he said, you can't do both. So I prefer to own companies as opposed to run them. So for folks that have a larger group of owners that they mm -hmm. have to satisfy, I mean, I think this advice is still pretty good for most senior executives. You're probably doing more micromanagement than you need to. You may even mm -hmm. be doing more checking in than you need to just because right. you want to be informed, not because it's improving the business. But there is also a need to share that information around. So how do you get the information you need if you're not in contact with all the people doing all the work? So one of the core tenets of asynchronous management is the platform is the manager and we have an environment where all that data is available to everyone. We call it radical transparency inside of the company. So I have a dashboard that I take a look at that has all of the more important numbers that I need to look at every single day. And one of them was out of whack. At the beginning of this week, we lost a important six-figure client, yearly client for us. I said, what's going on? And actually it was a really good synchronous collaborative moment where we collaborated asynchronously through comments. And the big question was, this customer quit our product and they are exactly the customer that we're trying to get. Why did this person quit? And we mm -hmm. brought in product and marketing and support and customer success and engineers. And we came up with a really good perspective on how we should choose a different direction inside of the company and inside of the product. And so that was a fantastic collaboration moment for us because it gave us a moment to be able to not just talk about losing this individual customer, but how does this apply to the larger direction of where we're going as a business? 
That's a great example. And I appreciate your sharing it. So this ego hit that you had to take. Yeah. Internally, what did you have to accept in yourself so you could comfortably make that change? Oof. Well, I think that I probably am still uncomfortable about it. I don't want to be bad at things. I'd rather <laughs> be good at things, right? I'd rather be the person that knows all the answers. And if I'm going to go a little bit deeper about that, I think that I have just accepted that I can't answer all of these questions. I'm not good at those particular things. I'm not good at management. I'm not bad at management, but it's not my profession. It is not something that I aspire to be a manager. If I, if I went back to zero again, I don't think I would ever be a chief executive or a chief officer of any type of company. Mm -hmm. I'm much more interested in innovation and trying to understand how to build products for the future. So what I do now is I simply just figure out where I think the industry will be in 36 months. And then I try to align all of our products and services towards that target. And I don't manage any executives at all anymore. And I'm much yeah. happier for it. So the part of when you say I'm not a great manager, what are some of the things that you were like, I have to accept I'm not great at X, Y, and Z? What are those X, Y, and Zs? So I don't get back to people on a regular basis. I am relatively curt sometimes with employees and I just tell them to go and do it, but I don't actually help them figure out how to do it. We actually have solved this in one of our core values, which is self-guided missile. So our perspective is we are not going to tell you how to hit the target. We're going to tell you what the target is, and it's up to you to identify how to get to the target. That's something that is, again, something that is weird for us that the majority of people wouldn't like, but we really like it in our company. We like mm -hmm. to be able to have that type of value. And then when you look at Jim Collins, good to great EOS entrepreneur operating system, I'm much more on the visionary side of the spectrum. I think I'm 89 points on the visionary side and something like 23 on the integrator side, which is a pretty extreme visionary side. And yeah. those people make for horrible managers. They are not very good managers and they shouldn't be managers. So the data shows very clearly I shouldn't be. But can be really good leaders. And so I think that's part of the differentiation sure. you were making earlier. Absolutely. So I was reading a little bit more about Time Doctor, and I noticed that you do address the concern that when that might get implemented in a company, that employees feel like, I'm always being watched and tracked. We never want to have people feeling like they're being micromanaged or helicopter managed. Right. How do you protect the privacy of folks? So for me, the big important thing for Time Doctor is that we have accountability and accountability is a two-way street. So there's accountability on the employee side and the employer side. Internally, as an example, everyone in the company uses Time Doctor. So everyone knows right now that I have a podcast, To Lead is Human. That's the current task that I'm working on. And they know that I've been working on it for one hour and seven minutes and 38 seconds. And they know that... <laughs> The majority of that time was spent on Riverside.fm, and I'm looking at the report right now, and three minutes on Gmail, right? So all of that data is collected, and I think 
where it becomes an issue is where you have someone that has access to your information, but you don't have access to theirs. And that's something Ah. that we really try to be able to fight against, which is we're all in the same boat together. All right. So we're getting close to the end. Two more questions. The first is my favorite task, everyone, which is the title of our podcast is To Lead is Human. And when you hear this, what does it mean to you as a leader? Well, the first one, I love that you're using the word lead because I want to actually get rid of the word management. I think that it's a dirty word that we need to remove from our vocabulary. And then I think about what I do every month when I set up our all companies address, when we communicate who we are as a company, why we're doing what we're doing, why it's important, and getting people excited about the things that are happening inside of the organization. That's what I think about when I think about how am I going to actually create a positive impact in everyone's lives that works at the company by showing those people the impact that we're creating for our customers. That's the most exciting part of my month is sitting down and being able to actually put one of those together because it's such an impactful moment for people. And they always come back energized, as do I, on what we want to be able to do next. Mm, That's great. So as we're wrapping up, I wonder if there's one final thought or piece of advice you might offer to our listeners who want to be more successful in their efforts to lead successful organizations and build humanistic workplaces. I think one of the biggest pieces of advice I can give to anyone that is a leader right now in a company is that number one, remote work is not going away. Push back to the office is having the reverse effect. There are more remote workers today than there were a month ago or six months ago. And if you think it's going away, you are at a significant tactical and strategic disadvantage. And you need to understand that management is different when you do it remote, when you're running a distributed organization, hybrid or otherwise. And you need to be able to understand how to do that in order to be successful in the next generation of work. It's a big message, and I think it might take some time for people to kind of get their heads around it, but I have really enjoyed this conversation today. So huge thanks, Liam, for being here with us and for sharing this really mindset-changing approach to thinking about remote, hybrid work, as well as to the leadership opportunities and challenges there. So Liam, what's the best way for folks who might want to track you down and see what you're up to next? How do you want people to reach out if they are interested to get in touch? So best place would be the YouTube channel, youtube.com slash running remote. All of our talks are up there for free as we continue to reinforce our mission of empowering everyone to get access to remote work opportunities. So you can consume all that content there. If you want to go a little bit deeper, you can pick up the book. It's on Amazon, Barnes and Noble chapters everywhere else. And if you even want to go deeper than that, go check out the conference. We're going to be in Lisbon next year, and uh, we go to a different location every single year, and it's a great collection of people that are thinking about the future of work. How do they find the conference info? Runningremote.com. Okay, perfect, and couldn't be easier. So thanks again, Liam. I deeply appreciate the time you've given us today. Track to the second, and I hope (laughs) it does deliver value back into your organization. It's been a pleasure to meet you and talk with you today on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me.
Please stay with us for a moment and I'll share some takeaways from my conversation with Liam and a coaching tip to help you uplevel your own leadership starting right away. Hi, this is Sharon. I'm popping in just before the takeaways to remind you that as an executive coach, I'm always looking to support new clients. If you or someone you know might be looking for an executive coach, head over to my website, leadinglarge.com, and you can book a complimentary appointment with me. In the first 25 minutes, we'll be able to identify a challenge you're facing and talk about whether I'm the right fit to work with you. I look forward to hearing from you. So, wow, Liam shared a really different perspective on and really different experiences of leadership. Maybe controversial, maybe applicable in your situation, maybe not. And he also surfaced a few key ideas that I think all leaders really should think about. First off, culture. What is the purpose of culture for your company? So, Liam described one main purpose for them as making sure that it's really clear what their company's unique views are. He sees culture as the things we believe that not every other company believes. And I can understand that because that clear differentiation allows them to not just do all the screening for employees themselves, but it helps potential employees, prospective employees, have the information they need to decide, is this a place I fit? Do I share these beliefs? Do I want to work that way? He talked about them needing people that can self-direct. Once they know what they're responsible for producing, they know what they need to do it, how to find what they need, and they just drive themselves forward. So that helps them quite a bit in attracting the kinds of employees that will be a great fit for their company. For your company, what's the purpose of culture? And when you describe it, is it differentiating enough? If not, you might want to rethink that. The next really big thing, of course, we talked about this whole idea of asynchronous management, asynchronous leadership, and it's very clear that it requires a mindset shift. It also requires a few conditions about people, about processes, and about tools. People-wise, you as the leaders have to be willing to envision how you could manage people well without all the synchronous time that typically is required. So how could you do that? Or could you? I think it also requires a relatively high need for deep work, meaning a lot of employees need uninterrupted states of flow, and that helps increase productive work time. The fewer interruptions are enabled by specific processes and tools that allow asynchronous access to all the information people need to do their work when they need it, and they know how to go find it for themselves. Another thing that's necessary are people who are self-directed. And these are people who primarily have what we describe as an internal locus of control, meaning their motivation comes from within, and they may need less external validation although they will still need plenty of feedback. It requires substantial discipline, I think, to attend to the increased communications needs without resorting or defaulting to more meetings. One of the things that Liam told us is that some of the companies, including his own companies, 
have reduced the amount of time their employees spend in virtual meetings from more than 50% to, in their case, less than 20%. Imagine if you and your organization could cut out more than half of your meetings and instead have that deep work time. To do that, they use set up shared practices like no software notifications except for one are allowed. Every employee turns off all those notifications except the one from the Slack emergency channel. And if there's an emergency, all hands on deck, everybody knows it, everybody gets it, and everybody helps. The last thing I'll add is a platform that provides the vast majority of the information an employee would need to do their job. That would include goals, process documentation, performance data, access to training, and a number of other things. And I think because Liam's company, Time Doctor, uses their own tool, of course, they know how to use it very well, and they do find it incredibly helpful. If you think that's something your company could value, go on over and snoop around their website and see what they promise. The other thing, he adds that if your company can successfully adopt such a model, you might need only half the management layer you now have. And for some companies, that could be a really substantial savings. And then the third thing, because you know I always like three takeaways, prioritize your synchronous work for the most critical activities that require person-to-person contact. Group problem solving on big challenges, immediate solutioning on a crisis that might happen, individual performance management, and individual development conversations and in-person company-wide meetings, which they do annually, to make sure that they are connected to each other, building deep relationships, and shared understanding about what their company does and how they do it and what drives their success. So here's my coaching tip for you today. One of the best ways to improve accountability among your employees is to co-create expectations with them, setting out in advance what someone will be accountable for, and the metrics that will demonstrate success. If you determine these in advance with your employee, you can foster increased commitment and increased personal accountability. So success becomes framed then as something you work with your employees on to help them self-improve. And the metrics provide the scorecard for employees to self-correct. You, as the leader, provide the coaching and development support to help them make that progress. I'm Sharon Richmond, and this has been To Lead as Human. You can find out more about me at leadinglarge.com. That's L-E-A-D-I-N-G, large.com. To Lead as Human is part of the Miracy FM podcast network which also includes such shows as Soul Savvy Business and Making It. This episode was produced by the incomparable Cynthia Lamb. Andrew Chapman, also Beyond Compare, assembled the episode. Danny Eaney is our fabulous executive producer. Don't miss any upcoming episodes. Please follow us on Mirror CFM's YouTube channel or your favorite podcast player, which might be where you're listening today. If you've learned something useful, I have two requests. First, put it down in a starred review and tell everybody what you learned so they'll listen too. And second, 
Make sure you share it with another colleague because the more leaders we reach, the better leadership will become all the way around. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time on To Lead is Human. I'm Molly Mahoney. I'm Danny Eaney. I'm Virginia Mooskies. I'm Melinda Cohen. I'm Dave Lacani. I'm Michael Port, and you're listening to Making Making It. You would think that when you hit the New York Times list or the Wall Street Journal bestseller list, you would feel like you made it. For me, it never has. I think making it can mean whatever you want it to mean for you. Making it is about having time to spend as I want to spend it. Making it really is about being free to live according to your own genuine values and priorities. It's about acceptance. Not only like making money, but make a difference. Make a contribution. contribution. Like feeling like I'm making a difference to someone. And I don't think making it is a one and done. I think it's an ebb and flow spiral type of pattern. Making it, to me, really means being able to bring your whole self to the table. It's really a choice that you make every day. Because the truth is that you do not really know what you're doing until you get started doing it. I'd say that the first seven, maybe eight years was like pushing a boulder up the hill. If there's anything that I could say to my younger self, I would say, really? Like, for real, for real? Trust. I would tell myself no shortcuts, no shortcuts. The path is always in front of you, even if it's not clear. The key is to keep moving forward. Everything requires work and effort, no matter how much you love it. You've got to find something that you love, something that you enjoy, so that your work is not a labor, it's not a chore. Don't compare yourself to others. But recognize that if you see someone else doing something that is of interest to you, you can do it also. I had this sensation of, I kind of felt like the walls were shaking and I just felt like, that's what I've been doing all this time. That's who I am. In that moment, I knew who they were. I knew the burdens and distractions and I knew full potential. And then I ended up ultimately in the ultimate Frisbee Hall of Fame as a Johnny Appleseed for taking the sport out to the world. And so I just said to myself, you have to give this a try. If you don't give it a try, you'll spend the rest of your life wondering if you could have done it. The water is always changing, and your comfort with that doesn't come from knowing that there is no uncertainty coming. It comes from trusting in your competence to handle that. I like to say, don't emulate, elevate. That's how you're going to make it. Making It is a weekly podcast brought to you by our team at Miracy. New episodes are available on Spotify, Apple Music, and most anywhere else podcasts are found.